As we turn our attention to uh, the catechism this morning, brothers and sisters, please open up in your Bibles this morning to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, and as you are doing so, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. On this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, I'm going to read in your hearing a portion of Scripture from 1 Kings chapter 11, namely, verses 1 through 8. 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please find your seats. I want you to imagine a scenario with me, a scenario in which bills are coming in day after day, but not only are these bills never paid, they are never actually even opened. Instead, they just hit, <clears throat> excuse me, they just hit the coffee table and they begin to stack up. Apparently, the recipient of these bills doesn't care. Then one day, the power is finally turned off. Now, don't get me wrong, the, the pile of bills is still stacking up. It's just harder to see now with no electricity. A few weeks later, the water is then turned off. And finally, there is a knock at the door, and it is the sheriff with an eviction notice. Now, of course, this is nothing but apathy turned up to 11. The individual in our story can't even be bothered to open the mail, nor less pay the bills. Now, I broached the subject of apathy because apathy is birthed from the womb of sin. And beloved, it is all too easy for us to be lulled into a state of apathy, or we might say a spiritual coma. You see, this is one of the things that makes sin so sinister. What makes sin so sinister is how quickly you and I can just sort of become accustomed to it. 
Think of it, if you will, if you will as a meal. For us, sin is not an acquired taste. It's actually something that, quite, that, that comes quite natural to us. It's something that we all gulp down. What's worse, one of sin's chief dangers is this. Its horror loses its ability to horrify. So in the same way that bills just sort of stack up and stack up and stack up and no thought is given to them, so we can be lulled into a spiritual coma, completely oblivious to our own sin or the sin of those around us. We can become so apathetic, church, that the vulgarity of sin, over time, it comes to have something of a G rating in our consciences. Consider abortion. Perhaps there is no sin in which our apathy has fully metastasized like it has with abortion. Now, speaking broadly... I want to be quick to say it's not uncommon for Christians to have an opinion on the matter. Many Christians are so-called one-issue voters, meaning they will only support candidates who reject abortion, at least ostensibly. I say that because what we have seen over the last year or so from pro-life organizations and pro-life lawmakers is something that is quite shocking. And that is that many have come out against legislation that would provide equal protection for all human beings. Not just those out of the womb, but also those in the womb. But the fact is that Christians are the ones who have built and financed and staffed many of the crisis pregnancy centers all across our land, including the two that we have here in Kennewick. So don't get me wrong, Christians have an opinion on abortion, to which we should just very quickly ask, how could we not? If God hates abortion, shouldn't we likewise? But when we are honest with ourselves, the truth is many of us don't really care all that much. The fact is, if we are honest, most of us are apathetic when it comes to to the evils of abortion. Now, brothers and sisters, I raise the issue this morning because as I said today, or really last Sunday, was Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And really, this month marks the 40th anniversary. Back in 1984, President Ronald Reagan issued a proclamation designating January 22nd as the first National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And since then, churches all across our land on the third Sunday of January have mourned the lives lost due to the evils of abortion, as well as offer the gospel to those who would hear. But you might be tempted to think, well, is this still need to be a thing? After all, wasn't Roe overturned like a year or so ago? And the answer is yes, Roe was overturned, and we should rejoice in the fact that that battle was won, but the war is far from over. Since then, individual states have sought to enshrine Roe-like law into action. And you should know that our state is such a one. 
Washington and her leaders are dead set on digging their heels in and doing all that they can to make the murdering of preborn children here in our state quick and legal and convenient. So much so that abortifacients are now out in front of Planned Parenthood in something that resembles a vending machine. To say nothing of the pills that you can order online right now and have shipped to your front door. And so it is on this Sunday that we sound the alarm once again. Let me be very clear, we do so not with our chests puffed out, but with our heads hung low, mourning the lives lost. We ought to grieve for our own sin this morning. And we have to grieve for our nation's sin. And we have to call our nation to turn from her high places and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for pardon and peace. Now I suspect that the mention of high places immediately raises questions as well as orient us to the text of Scripture in front of us. Solomon, we are told, not only frequented these high places, but he himself is responsible for erecting some of them. Verse 7 is clear. We are told, then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. So catch this, Solomon, the, the wisest king of Israel, built high places for these pagan deities. Demons, really. What are these high places, you ask? Well, as the name suggests, they were located up on the tops of mountains at high places. And whether it was simply a pile of stones or uh, something more formal like an ancient staircase, you, you, would, you would scale this mountain and, and you would do so to reach its peak or its tip. And once there, you would engage in worship. Think of high places as sort of ancient sanctuaries. This is where the, the false gods would meet with mere mortals. The thinking seemed to run like this. Well, the, the mountain peak is the, is the closest point where sort of heaven and earth meet. And therefore, it proved to be an ideal spot to set up an altar, to set up a place of worship and sacrifice. Now, I should be quick to add, high places in Scripture don't always carry a sinister connotation, but they usually do especially after the building of the temple. Samuel, for example, is seen offering a sacrifice at a high place, but we know from the text that it was offered to Yahweh, the true and living God, and it was offered in a way that was in accord with God's law. But as redemptive history progresses, and again, namely, after the temple is built, high places become increasingly wicked. Really, they become something of a breeding ground for false worship, for idolatry. In fact, you can actually use high places as something of a litmus test for the fidelity of the ancient kings of Israel and Judah. In other words, a king's loyalty to Yahweh is seen in what he does when he comes into power with these high places. 
If he has them removed, then he is fully devoted to God. But if he leaves them be, then that king's heart is divided. Which gets us back to Solomon and 1 Kings 11. I want us to see his fall. And I'm actually using that word sort of in its theological context. Hear me out. If Genesis 3 depicts the fall of Adam and humanity, then 1 Kings 11 depicts the fall of Solomon and the nation. Or we could say it this way, just as Genesis 3 reveals Adam's idolatry, so 1 Kings 11 reveals Solomon's idolatry. And you should know that it all begins with a desire. More to the point, a desire contrary to the law of God. And ironically enough, especially considering our current culture where love is love, our passage brings this out with the language of love. Verse 1, for example, records, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Or consider the end of verse 2 where we are told that Solomon clung to these. That is, Solomon clung to all these women in love. So just as Eve looked at the fruit of the tree and loved what she saw, so Solomon looked at all of these women and he loved what he saw. Or we might say both Eve and Solomon lusted after what they saw. Such a desire brings forth division, namely division in the heart. Do you recall the, the first commandment? What, what does God tell us? You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, heart, soul, mind, the totality of our being is to be given over to the true and living God, not divided. Which means that what God requires of every one of us, and not just within these four walls, but every single human being, is complete loyalty. Which is what the first commandment is getting at. None of this, as we might say today, sort of one foot in, one foot out. God wants us to be devoted to Him. But of course, Solomon's heart is altogether divided, isn't it? We're told that, that God warned His people in the middle of verse 2, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. Why, why such a prohibition? Our passage continues, For surely, you, you can be convinced of this. They will turn away your heart after their gods. You see, you can't do this, Scripture says, because if you do this, it will create a Grand Canyon right down the middle of your soul. And you will be divided. Now very quickly, I do need to pause and press into something that is altogether irrelevant. There is a reason Christians are strictly warned in Scripture to marry only in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7.39 In other words, Christians are to marry other Christians. The reason? Well, if you marry a non-Christian, 
like Solomon did, what you can be assured of is this. Your allegiances to Christ will either be swallowed up or snuffed out. And that's because you weren't designed as a Christian to marry someone outside of the faith. It would be like you taking your vacuum outside when you get home this afternoon and and trying to suck up whatever remaining snow you might have on your driveway. Your vacuum wasn't designed for that. So it will ruin the vacuum. It will make a mess. Well, similarly, Christians are not designed to marry those who are not Christians. And when they do, it's a disaster. It's an absolute disaster. And Solomon, of course, is a case in point. In a related vein, let me push a little bit further and make one more comment. And this is true of young and old alike, so please don't tune me out. Because marriage is to be between Christians, you have no business dating or getting to know or hanging with or courting, or any other label you put on it, or those of you who repudiate labels, talking to you millennials and Gen Zers, whatever it is, you have no reason to be being involved with somebody at that level. You are to be friends. And even then, that relationship is to be an evangelistic one where you are engaging that friend with the gospel. Not sizing them up for marriage or having your heartstrings sort of intertwine outside of your control. The idea of so-called missionary dating is nothing more than a ticking time bomb. One that will blow up in your face and shred your soul. And so I want to take this opportunity to just plead with you, brother or sister, that you do not go down that road. You can talk to any of the people in here who are already married. And and if we're honest, this is what we will tell you. We will tell you that life and marriage and family is really, really difficult. Even when you're married to someone who is a Christian. It's a million times worse. And I don't say worse, that's not what I mean. It's a million times more difficult when you're married to someone who doesn't share those allegiances. And if you go down that road, if you allow those butterflies to start spinning up, then you ought not to be surprised when you find your heart divided as it was here with Solomon. Now back to Solomon and his Genesis 3 type fall. I want you to notice that his desire led to division, and division brought about disobedience. We're told in verse 3 that Solomon had 700 wives who were princesses, and 300 concubines. And then we're told that his wives turned away his heart. Verse 4 elaborates, For when Solomon was old... Very quickly, don't think that just because you start getting gray hair that you are somehow impervious to sin. 
Don't think that just because you've been walking with the Lord for 50 years, that somehow when you get old and when you retire that you can check out. It is when Solomon was old that everything went to pot. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Think back to Eden. Just as Eve had entertained the musings of the serpent and bit into that fruit, utter rebellion. Well, so here Solomon has been swayed by the lies of these women, and he is all in utter disobedience. And here's where it gets tricky. Where we moderns close our ears and refuse to hear. It gets tricky because we think that a divided heart can be maintained. We think that a divided heart is just sort of not the end of the world. But the scriptures tell us that a divided heart is not sustainable. Like like staring into the sun on a bright August day is not sustainable. So neither is a divided heart. And that's because all a divided heart is, is a devoted heart to someone or something other than the true and living God. Consider what Christ himself said. He warns us, no one can serve two masters. But why? Why can't you serve two masters? Why can't you have a divided heart and divided loyalties and divided allegiances? Christ answers, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You catch that? You won't love both. We think we'll love the one and like the other. Jesus says you're a fool. You will love the one and hate the other. You will serve the one and you will reject the other. So the point that I'm trying to make and the point that Jesus is making is that devotion is inevitable. It's unavoidable. Verse 4 testifies, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. So so he is divided. Verse 6, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. His heart is divided, and so he is devoted to evil. This is why pluralism will never actually work. Not in our society and not in our souls. Because you will be devoted to something. You will be devoted to someone. You are devoted to something or someone. You are either devoted to the true and living God or you are devoted to some idol. No matter how much that idol is sanitized. Devotion is unavoidable. It is Christ or chaos and there is no third way. So back up with me again. Because again, I want us to see together Solomon's fall as it is described here. Catch this. Desire brings forth division. Which in turn results in disobedience. Disobedience then, when it has its way, conceives 
devotion. And devotion, please hear this, devotion always births death when we are not devoted to God. Death is always the end. Death is always the bitter and rotten and poisonous fruit. And you see it even here in our passage. Verse 7 records the tragedy. We are told that Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did, verse 8, for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. I said, death is the inevitable result, and that is true in our passage. But perhaps what I just read in your hearing doesn't shock us because we don't actually see what it is telling us. Zoom out a little bit and consider verse 5's language. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Solomon went after her. And he also likewise went after Milcom the abomination of the Ammonites. The question is, what does our text mean when it says that Solomon went after these false gods? Well, Ashtoreth was the Canaanite goddess of sensual love and fertility. For Solomon to worship her, for Solomon to, verse 5, go after her, meant that he likely went to the high place and engaged in sexual relations out in the open with the temple prostitutes. That was the liturgy. That's what it meant. That's what you did. If someone, if you told somebody that you went to church today, they would assume that you went and you offered some prayers and sang some songs and the Bible was read and talked about. Well, if you went after Ashtoreth, that's what you did. It's that scandalous. Milcom, and then verse 7's Chemosh and Molech, these all refer to the same false god. And this false god, demon really, demanded blood. More specifically, the blood of children. Which means that our passage suggests that Solomon offered one of his children to the fire. All in an effort to placate both this bloodthirsty demon god and, let's be honest, to placate his nagging wife. to which I trust we all shake our heads in disgust. How grotesque. How barbaric. What vileness and insanity. The, the actual sacrificing of children on an altar. And we thank God that these high places have been removed. Well, did you know that one has been erected here not more than a mile away. Granted, it's cleaner. 
It's got nice paint on it. It has central heat and air. The doctors and nurses all wear white lab coats. But when you peel back all the makeup, Planned Parenthood is nothing less than a modern-day high place. One that actually makes even the pagan Canaanite demon gods blush. And that's because Planned Parenthoods all across our land shed more blood in an afternoon than Molech could have dreamed of shedding in a year. How can I say that? Well, to begin with, so-called birth control is handed out there like candy. Keep in mind, aside from pretty much condoms and other actual contraceptives, which I won't get into now, nearly all the pills can function as abortifacients. This is true even of the ever-popular pill that so many ladies are on. And that's because while the pill is advertised as something that prevents fertilization, it actually has a more sinister function. It can often end early pregnancies by preventing implantation of an already fertilized egg or a very early human being. This is likewise true of what is called planned, uh, rather plan B. Again, this pill is marketed as a means to prevent conception. And it does this by creating a chemical wall between sperm and egg, intended to keep the egg from being fertilized and therefore creating a new, unique life. So far, so good. Problem is, when that wall fails and the, the percentage and the numbers of you know, how often this happens is all over the map. We just know that it happens. When it does, that chemical wall that was intended to keep sperm and egg apart now creates a toxic environment for the embryo, killing the baby. Ladies, you need to be very careful about this stuff. We live, unfortunately, in a day and age when you can't always just take your doctor's word for it. I'm not suggesting that there's malice involved. There might simply be negligence or ignorance involved. But if you're going to start putting stuff like this in your body, you need to do some digging. And this is true of husbands as well. Husbands and wives, you, you need to talk about these things. If you are taking pills like these sorts of pills to help you in your family planning, you need to first make sure that what you are taking is not unknowingly destroying lives, literally your own children. I don't mean this as a brag, but I remember back in high school, nearly every girl I knew was on the pill. And they were on the pill not necessarily for sort of like sexually promiscuous reasons, but because it was sort of a well-known, established fact back then that when ladies take birth control, it lowers the amount of androgens in their body, which results in less sebum, which means less acne. Okay? But how many babies have been executed by ignorant teens who didn't want zits on picture day? We have to do our due diligence in this area. 
Now back to Planned Parenthood making Molech blush. Aside from all of the pills that you can get in the vending machine or that you can get in the brown bag when you walk out or that you can quite literally just have shipped to your door from the convenience of your home, know this, each and every Monday, surgical abortions are performed. That means this, that there are tools, many of which resemble what you have in your shed or garage at home, that are used to tear limbs off of children in the womb. They use pliers that crush the skull of the babies. And then something like a shop vac is used to suck them out. This happens every day across our country. According to End Abortion Now, 2,326 children are sacrificed at these high places every single day. 2,326. And they are sacrificed on an altar as an act of worship. And that is because all of life is worship. And that is true whether you are a Christian or not. All of life is worship. All of life is you and I and our neighbors and our coworkers and our family and our friends serving someone or something. Particularly in our culture, abortion has become something of a sacrament. Just as in the times of First King and Solomon's day, born children were placed in the arms of Molech and burned alive to appease the demon gods. Well, so today, children are offered on the altar of convenience, the altar of politics, and the altar of immorality. Consider this. Our secular religion is one of unashamed self-autonomy. Meaning, I am my own God, and because I am my own God, how I feel trumps all reality. Just as an aside, that's the only way that we can even begin to make sense of the transgender movement. What I feel, what is interior to me, is now definitional for reality. And because we all think now that we are our own gods, we think everything exists for me and for my comfort. Hence, the altar of convenience. Because I am God and everything exists for me. Therefore, my lifestyle and my decisions and my agenda, it must not just be tolerated by you, but it must be celebrated by you as well. Enter the altar of politics. And because I am God and my own lawmaker... Well, I should be able to do anything I want with my body, including sleep with anything that has two legs. Enter the altar of immorality. And in all of this, abortion lies at the very center. Which is also why the outlawing of abortion is met with such vehement Rejection. Why? Because for them, abortion is their salvation. It is their Christ. 
It is the sacrament of a secular religion that says, I am God and I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want. You take away abortion and you take away their worship. It would be like you and I gathering without the Bible. What's the point? Now, for many of us, this is all we've ever known. If you were born after Roe v. Wade, which was in 1973, then you have literally grown up in a culture of death. For those under the age of 50, these high places have always existed, and therefore, they are accepted. You haven't known anything else. It's like the 20-year-old that that hears about phones with cords on them. That's not the world that they live in. To make matters worse, because it has always been this way, and this is particularly true of, again, those under the age of 50, we have grown increasingly desensitized to its filth. Just as, just as a test case, and I don't, I'm, not, I'm not trying to poke anybody, but, but we drive by, say, Planned Parenthood, for example. Are our consciences even pricked? Do we weep? Do we pray? Or do we, sort of out of sight, out of mind, keep going on with our day? The apathy is strong. The spiritual coma is intoxicating. So here's the question. What would it look like to wake up from this coma? Or let me, let me go after it this way. What would it look like redeeming grace? How, how might we engage in, if I can put it this way, the tearing down of these high places? Now, very quickly, caveat, It's not a call to violence or literal destruction of property. Let's be very clear, Christians. This is a spiritual battle, Ephesians 6.12. And the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, 2 Corinthians 10.4. So I'm not advocating that we actually go to Planned Parenthood and burn it down. That, That would be missing the point entirely. But what I am asking is this. What would it look like for the church to put on the whole armor of God and go to war? Well, first, we must stop. By that, I mean we must stop with our apathy, our silence, our this isn't the hill to die on attitude. And instead, we must repent. And the scriptures teach us that repentance really must begin here with the household of God. So we must first repent of our own sins long before we expect our neighbors to repent of theirs. So maybe you've had an abortion. The data asserts that one in six abortions are procured by a professed Christian. Or maybe... You're a husband or a boyfriend or a family member that has pressured a woman into this. If so, it's time for us to repent. 
It's time for us to, to own it and to take it before Christ and to confess it, knowing that when we do, we will experience His forgiving grace. This is what makes the gospel so scandalous. His precious blood can forgive any and all sins, even the heinous sins that Solomon committed in 1 Kings 11 and the heinous sins that you and I commit today. To build on that, it's it's worth pointing out, this is why you and I, as individuals and as a church, can be so real with our confession. I mean, think about this. We have a God who literally died to show us his love for us and to forgive us our sins. He then rose again from the dead, showing us that sin and death and hell has no grip on him. And so it has no grip on those who are his. This is why we can confess. This is why we can repent. Because our confession isn't you and I standing in front of a mirror, you know, looking into ourselves. But we look to Christ. And we look to his grace, to his mercy. At the same time, we must also repent of our pornography. Generally assumed to be a male-only vice. Again, the, the statistics continue to come out and let us know that it's not that simple. Both men and women, young and old, are enslaved by this vice. Now, if you think this whole thing, this whole idea of, of pornography is coming out of right field, here's the connection. You and I don't have the luxury of sitting here all self-righteous and condemn the world for the sin of abortion if you or I are viewing pornography. And that is because one fuels the other. Porn is the volcano from which the devastating lava of sex trafficking and abortion flows. It's all connected. You can't live in a world with porn and OnlyFans and not have sex trafficking and Planned Parenthood. Second, we must stand. For the high places of our day to come down, the church must stand up. Or to say it another way, it's not enough to merely confine the Word of God to our living rooms or our churches, but it must spill out into the public square. Or if I can turn the screw, our faith is not merely a private faith, but a public faith. We were not designed to be Christians for 15 minutes after dinner at our table or for an hour or so here on Sunday mornings. We are to live our lives as Christians. And our faith has tentacles reaching into every sphere of life. And that is because Jesus isn't just Lord of your heart or your home or this church, but Jesus is Lord over all. So Christian, you must stand. You could stand with Mere Ministries, an organization seeking to combat sex trafficking right here in our own backyard. You can stand with You Medical or Hope Medical, two local organizations that offer a, a wide range of life-affirming options. 
You could stand with the evangelists at Planned Parenthood and give out tracts. Redeeming Grace, know this, that each Monday, babies are literally torn limb from limb, not more than a mile from here. So every morning, myself and others, some of you, are there standing on the corner. You want to know what we're doing? We're praying. We're pleading. We're preaching. I would encourage you to come and to join us. I would go so far as to say that just as Christian families should be the first to adopt children, well, so Christian churches should adopt Planned Parenthoods. Every abortion mill in the country should be adopted by a handful of churches. And every hour the mill is open for the destruction of the innocent, the church should be there proclaiming the life-giving promises of Jesus Christ. So if you're willing and able, would you join us? As part of our Highways and Hedges ministry, the, the sort of the, evangel, uh, the uh, evangelistic arm of this congregation, join us as we seek to take the light of the gospel into quite literally the darkest corner in our city. And if you've ever been there for an hour, you know exactly what I mean by a dark corner in our city. You can almost feel the oppression by parking in that area and getting out. And then third and finally, we can't just stop and stand, but beloved, we must also speak. We must speak for several reasons, one of them being that our pre-born neighbors can't speak for themselves. And I would ask you, if the church won't stand in the gap and raise her voice, well, then who will? Who will? We are the only people on planet Earth that actually have the remedy to this cancer. It's not republicanism. It's not morals. It's not even necessarily legislation. It is the gospel. And we have been entrusted with that message. So let us not hide our light under a basket. We have the only message that every single person on the planet needs to hear. And the fact is, that message involves that we are all sinners. Like sinner sinners. And that we deserve God's wrath for our sin. But God has seen fit in Christ to show us grace. This is why Christ has come to us. Christ came on a rescue mission to save sinners like me and like you. And the promises of the gospel are amazing. If we would but turn from our sins and embrace Christ, then all our sins would be forgiven. We would actually be declared righteous in God's sight. And we would be promised heaven and resurrection glory. You want to know something? That is amazing news. We should probably tell somebody about it. Christ's perfect life of righteousness is ours. His sin-paying death cancels our debt and His triumphant resurrection is our assurance. Brothers and sisters, these are not things that we are supposed to just ponder. These are truths 
we are supposed to proclaim. We actually have to go out into the highways and hedges and open our mouths and speak. With this emphasis upon speaking, ironically enough, we are currently living through what has been called a silent holocaust. One in which scores and scores of little image bearers of God are being led away to death. And beloved, these are our neighbors. These are the ones that Jesus calls us to love. We, we look at the images of the Jews escorted off to concentration camps under Hitler's regime, and we are aghast, and rightfully so. But for some reason, Planned Parenthood's Holocaust doesn't even seem to register. And keep in mind, numerically, those executed in the womb are ten times those who were gassed in Hitler's chambers. Rollo May, a notable 20th century psychologist, once remarked, hate is not the opposite of love. Apathy is. And I, for one, suspect he is right. At the risk of tipping my hand, it requires a lot of energy to hate. It's much easier to just not care. And it seems our apathy has put us in a spiritual coma. May God have mercy upon us. May God's spirit awaken us. And may the glory of Christ so captivate us that we would stop that we would stand, and that we would speak. Would you join, with me in, join me in prayer this morning? Our Father, we humble ourselves before you this morning. We pray that your word would take root in our hearts. We pray that you would be in the business through the ministry of your spirit that you'd be in the business of transforming us from the inside out, that you would be growing us in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that you would further conform us into his image, and that as the gathered church scatters, so we would go out and do the work that you have called us to do. We pray that you would awaken us from our spiritual coma. We pray that you would help us to love one another and to encourage one another. And we pray that we would be a church, that this would be a place where the gospel is proclaimed and celebrated, where even the vilest of sinners among us would find the blood of Christ to be that which saved their souls. We pray even now as we prepare to approach the table of the Lord and enjoy communion, that you would ready us for this most serious and solemn work. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.